Hello, and welcome to Acute, the podcast where we discuss solutions to pressing problems. I'm Mara Vickers, and today we will be discussing the renter's crisis in the United States and the institutional investors who are driving it. The episode title of Acute today is Storied Vision, the United States' Rent Crisis. It is a title that is made up by my grandmother. It is a pun, so have fun with it. I'd like to say that hopefully if you heard the opening soundtrack if everything went well. Um, That is uh, the culmination of extraordinarily limited um, garage band and just general sound knowledge. Um, The goal is to make it feel a little bit hopeful, a little bit exciting. Um, If possible, if this vision could be obtained, it would be really exciting to try to get the sound of an acute angle, um, a representative sound of the acute angle. I don't know if that exists, but if anyone has any ideas, please let me know. That'd be very helpful. All right. Today, we will be discussing the renter's crisis in the United States. And I think it's important that we start with an overview of the current housing market. During COVID, we saw unprecedented job loss and economic downturn. According to the Pew Center, twice as many renters fell behind on rent during the pandemic. An estimated 30 to 40 million families in the United States faced eviction rates in 2020 during the COVID crisis. In addition, rental rates have increased by 15% since 2001. That is including inflation. In 2022, while recovering from the economic hardships of the pandemic, renters face limited assistance. The housing crisis existed in severity prior to the pandemic. Over 10.2 million Americans receive rental assistance annually, and 5.2 million American households use federal rental assistance to afford modest housing. 69% are seniors, children, or people with disabilities. Rental assistance is basically a voucher, an operating subsidy, or privately funded assistance that provides the difference between the monthly rental rate and the tenant's contribution of 30% of their income to pay for rent and utilities. This number of Americans filing for renter's assistance represents only half of those with reported need. Some experts argue that renter's assistance is not very helpful in the grand scheme of things. A survey by the National Homeless Information Project found that 86% of tenants who responded stated their landlords received emergency rental assistance but still went through with the eviction process. When faced with evictions, there's often nowhere else for tenants to go. A national survey found that 42% of tenants who are facing housing issues would prefer to move into more stable housing but lack option and opportunity to do so. It is therefore not surprising that we are facing a massive homeless crisis in the United States, and it is directly tied to the renter's crisis the United States is facing. Four in ten low-income people in the United States experience homelessness or contribute half of their income to their rent. Just as a reminder... The federal government recommends that at most someone contributes 30% or a third of their income to their rent. This contribution 
from America's poor equates to 23.4 million people, including families and children. Most of these do not receive rental assistance because there isn't enough federal funding. Due to the burden of rent, half a million people experience homelessness, and 1.4 million school children live in a state of homelessness in some capacity, either living with relatives or doubling down or living in their car. Unfortunately, modern-day renting issues are simply exasperated by the legal system. For court matters relating to unfair evictions, 81% of landlords are legally represented by attorneys, but only 3% of tenants are represented. To label this as a disparity would be an understatement. This is a disturbing crisis. So what is being done to provide tenants more rights, and what more can be done? Experts pose a variety of solutions. Ensuring tenants have a right to counsel is the top priority for most experts. Right to counsel measures ensure that tenants who are facing the complex process of an eviction proceeding are guaranteed legal representation, giving tenants a fair chance to access legal protections and stay in their homes. Under New York City's Right to Counsel RTC law, the Office of Civil Justice provides tenants facing eviction in the housing court or the New York City Housing Authority access to free legal representation and advice. The eviction RTC established in Cleveland, Ohio and enacted in 2017 provides free right to counsel to tenants facing evictions. They found 93% of those facing evictions and using the service avoided an eviction. Los Angeles, California, Denver, Colorado, and Multnomah County, Oregon, where I currently reside, all have current ballot initiatives to provide a free right to counsel for tenants facing evictions. In addition, the Emergency Rental Assistance, ERA, program provided financial assistance faced by tenants and landlords due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The Department of the Treasury has proposed that the ERA can be a basis for additional programs to keep people in stabilized housing. In addition, advocates argue that local and federal governments can increase rental units, which they argue will lower inflation and help renters have options when it comes to housing. This is a simply stated argument, but has a long history of contention. Proponents of the blatant increase in housing argue that oftentimes builders are propelled to build fancy apartment complexes and multi-million dollar homes that push the issue of gentrification and therefore push often poor but often black and brown communities out of their homes. Advocates respond by arguing that policymakers should cultivate state mandates for inclusionary housing, which would use money from inflated retail markets towards government-subsidized low-income housing. Now that we have a little bit of a picture of the renter's crisis today, it's important to understand who is driving it. Institutional investors are making the renting crisis much worse by buying up the vast majority of homes and renting them out at unaffordable prices for local tenants. On February 8th, 2022, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs heard from experts on issues with the rental market. These experts testified that unregulated institutional investors are purchasing a vast majority of the affordable housing market and overpricing their rentals without providing safe living standards for tenants just due to a lack of awareness and policy. Several tenants testified to support these experts' claims. According to Sally Martin, Director of Building and Housing in Cleveland, Ohio, rebound in the housing market has pressured local landlords to sell to institutional investment firms. She states that buyers are unable to compete with these firms and must be subjugated to criminal living standards and hazards. 
Mr. Ayer, a tenant, testified that he's lived in his apartment since 2000 with his wife and three children. He does not know who the owners of his property are because they make contacting them very difficult. The residents of the apartment complex are primarily Hispanic immigrants. Mr. Ayer testified to the conditions of his apartment. He says that the ceiling in the hallway is falling in. They don't have heat. The air conditioning stove and refrigerator does not work. He says that their rent has increased without any warning consistently. Aside from a local organization, which helps to translate, the residents receive no government assistance. Mr. Ayer says that since they are immigrants, they are treated as if they do not matter. According to Michael Waller, the executive director of the Georgia Appleseed Center for Law and Justice, institutional investors abuse the eviction systems in place and target black and brown communities. Housing and safety enforcement is under-resourced and cannot respond to these issues appropriately due to a lack of policy. What's more is, aside from doubling, tripling rent, investors also impose fees. Georgia institutional investors impose one-time activity fees and early termination fees, which can be three times a month's rent, ensuring that if they evict people, they make three times their standard profit within a month. Institutional investors claim they are a small part in the housing crisis, but experts do not agree. In New York City, 30% of house purchases are by institutional investors. In 2021, Georgia institutional investors were part of 40% of home purchases, but 76% of eviction filings. According to Michael Waller, eviction plans are a business plan by these institutional investors due to their strategic nature and intensity. Two renters agree. Miss Newman rents along with 1,700 other families in a manufactured home from Haven Park Capital. Her community is 87% seniors, and one in three residents are disabled. Prior to Haven Park Capital's ownership, her community had an owner who kept rates consistent. Haven Park Capital pretends to assist low-income residents, but has increased the cost of rent and utilities to the point where many residents cannot afford it. Miss Wynn, another resident, lives in an apartment complex in Brooklyn, New York, owned by the Green Book Partners. Green Book is partnered with the Carlisle Group and MW1 and fan- financed by institutional investors. The group has continuously increased the rent even during the pandemic. The bottom line is that tenants are not protected. Experts testified that local and state laws are not protecting tenants from their massive companies. There is a lack of investment in local safety laws, and tenant rights are undermined by state policies. For example, in Georgia, tenants are not allowed to investigate rentals prior to living in them. The money some institutions are making off of buying up the housing market is ensuring other companies don't have workers. As a result, large corporations such as Amazon and Wells Fargo have begun to build housing for employees. But who are these investors? The residents who testified live in spaces owned by the following private equity firms. Progress Residential is an investment firm that has, in the last 10 years, bought a majority of the market for middle-class homes in order to rent them out at higher prices. Haven Park Capital, that markets themselves as providers of affordable manufactured homes to low-income residents. However, NPR reported that investors like Havenbrook are overwhelmingly buying up the mobile home market and overcharging their renters. NPR followed up on this report, saying that the government is assisting these groups in evicting residents from their homes. Veritos is a San Francisco-based private equity firm, which is notorious for inflating rent. The Mullahan Group rents to the southern United States, and the former CFO just pled guilty to millions of dollars in wire fraud in 2019. Then there's Greenbook Partners, which is a New York-based investment firm that targets poorly run facilities purchases them up, and then 
sends out their residents. Senator Schumer stated that the firm was unjustly evicting New York residents, and many families stated they were evicted immediately after the firm bought their residence, even during COVID-19. COVID now that we have another grim picture of the current state of housing in the United States, let's discuss some solutions. Experts advocate for comprehensive nationwide tenant protections. They state that more supply for housing is needed and that the government must invest funding into nonprofit housing initiatives. Local and state policy must be cultivated to safeguard the housing market from investors. According to Sally Martin, South Euclid has passed several ordinance steps, including registration requirements. However, she says these steps are not enough to properly regulate the institutional investment firms and that federal action must be made to regulate these firms. Tenant activists propose that Fannie Mae's duty to serve, cultivated in 2019, which is essentially a list guiding big corporations in how they should treat their small-time tenants, that this should be required instead of recommended to private equity firms. The federal government has invested $20 million from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development into eviction protection and diversion. This is important considering very few federal resources currently assist tenants with knowing and advocating for their rights. However, experts say that there needs to be more. $20 million for government Funding is a penny in the bucket. There's also legislation by Representative Delorio, Representative Omar, and Senator Merkley, which will work to assist those facing evictions. In particular, Representative Delario has sponsored the HELP Act, which will hopefully pass and give way to greater uh, tenant rights. I'm now joined by Karen Watkins and Zoe Vickers to discuss these issues. This is recorded over Zoom, so the audio recording is a little rusty, but the overall content is right where we want it. Karen Watkins has lived in her home for 32 years and previously built her own home. Zoe Vickers built her own tiny house at 16 in order to ensure that she always had access to housing. My first question for y'all is what is your immediate reaction to this content? So I was wondering, um, where did the 30% come from that they're working off with where they're saying that 30% of that, that people should pay 30% of their income in shelter. Like, does that take into account, like, did, how did they come to that number where they like averaging out like food or like upkeep of living or were they just like, Oh, 30% seems right. This is like something that the government reiterates consistently that they're basing it off of kind of an economic ideal that if you're paying 30% in housing expenses, you can then utilize, theoretically, you could utilize 30, the remaining 30% for current living spending like groceries and other necessities. And then potentially you could utilize the remaining 30% for saving, but the reality is, is that this is not true for most Americans. Um, and especially the issue, one of the issues with these kinds of um, housing vouchers is you pay depending on how much money you make. So a common critique is that when people have subsidized low-income housing, when they increase their um, 
when they increase their salary, they still have to pay 30% of whatever their salary is. So essentially increasing their paycheck means increasing the amount of money they have to pay towards rent. And a lot of people argue that this is kind of disincentivizing people to escape poverty. But on the other hand, a lot of people are like, that argument is essentially bull and people want to escape poverty, but just aren't permitted to do so. And that like in general, in general, it's just like not the United States doesn't really permit an environment where people can escape poverty, which statistically is very true. Yeah, exactly. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like it's just making it harder for them to be able to make more money because once they start to make more money, then more money is also taken away from them, which when they're, if they're already making not enough, then that becomes difficult. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I mean, I think it's, it's all based around the United States government's like I said before, this like kind of ideal economic model, but is that economic model actually applicable to real life Americans? I mean, statistics show we're not crawling out of poverty, so. Uh-huh. Well, the 30% amount, they are saying that you're in a financially better um, adequate position if you're not spending more than that on rent. That's the assumption. Um, yeah, a healthy financial situation is how they describe it. And so that's where they, you know, they've just estimated it that way. But yeah, when you're curious, yeah. Your need in America, I mean, they've never figured out how to make it really possible for people to get out of poverty in terms of the way they've arranged uh, the assistance. That was my experience many, many years ago. It was very strange. Just curious how they come across this number 30%. Like, it, does that change depending on if you're a student or if you're unemployed or if you're like, what are the, what are the, the, the levels to this? To answer your question, Zoe, I have these facts in front of me now. Um, so this original 30% rule was, that says that you shouldn't spend more than 30% of your gross income on rent comes from a 1969 amendment to public housing requirements known as the Brooke Amendment. Um, and the idea was 30% was great for the time because it really did accurately reflect um, the living expenses of the 1970s, uh, late 1960s, but it is like according to many economists completely outdated for today's living expenses. Um, they say that back then there weren't high levels of student debt or worries about how to save for retirement. Um, there were also significantly less expensive retail markets. Um, and it says that Oftentimes, the financial institution of the states is so based on these old kind of principles. It's so ingrained in many of these banking institutions. I mean, even for basing, uh, for cultivating mortgages, most banks also require this 30% rule. 
that's 30% of your income for a mortgage. Um, so it's ingrained in the American financial psyche, but it is not actually reflected. I was, uh, I had another question. I was wondering about um, just how you were talking about gentrification in certain areas. And I was wondering if like a lot of neighborhoods, like sometimes they do need help, like with those structures of the buildings, you know, but then when help is provided, it raises the cost of a lot of the buildings and makes it inhabitable for the people who used to live there, um, particularly when they're adding in these new structures. And then I think I'm not in, super educated on this, but I think historically, like housing that was like affordable housing was never very glamorous at all you know it was like fit as many people as they can uh -huh. in one area yeah but definitely. now there is a transition to where there is because of modern construction a lot of these like they, they can manufacture very nice looking things for very cheap and very easy to make almost like putting together lego blocks you know like in some ways that's kind of how it felt like building my tiny house it was just like follow these instructions and put them together and there's like this beautiful thing because like there is you can get like all of these materials for pretty cheap shipped from anywhere you know um so i was just wondering is when there is there like instances of affordable housing being created but then that is in some way long term making it not affordable because it is raising the like desire of that area because of the way that it looks so it's they're saying it's affordable housing but in the long term it's actually not going to be so or something like that so yeah this is affordable housing and it's kind of crude design and ugliness has been an issue forever. In the 1920s, there was this architect who believed that um, houses should be look like high rises. Um, affordable houses should kind of be like these brick high rise structures with like parks surrounding them. Um, and he proposed this idea to Paris, this, the city, uh, to tear down all of their old buildings and then recreate these high rise uh, brick buildings with parks all around them. And the people were disgusted. They were like, absolutely not. We're not gonna tear down our old buildings. But New York uh, heard about his designs and they got really excited. And they started building these affordable housing units, which were uh, high rises and very, very uh, segregated from each other. The, the units were very segregated from each other. And um, there was another prominent architect who I'm going to try to find the name of, um, who he had kind of this ethos, he had this belief that the reason that so many of these affordable housing units uh, were so decrepit was not only because they were built with extremely bad materials because notoriously the government has both federal and local has never wanted to spend much money on affordable housing units because the worries that other people will be jealous that these people are living in free homes that are so nice 
um, which has kind of been the contention. And so this architect kind of responded to say, one of the reasons that these houses are so decrepit is because they are built to not provide community and they're also built to not provide people with independent spaces to exist in. And so he kind of launched and pioneered this philosophy on housing where everyone, the, creating how affordable houses that looked more like townhouses and were clearly separated out where everyone had their own home um, and like a backyard in the back and their own fence. Um, and he actually was very involved in building the, completely involved, completely had total creative control over the building of affordable housing um, in Yonkers, New York, which was a, I mean, an absolutely infuriating case of extreme racism in the 1990s from the white citizens of Yonkers towards uh, affordable housing units. Um, that's a whole nother story to get into, but the housing ended up being fairly successful in terms of its architectural design. Um, so that's kind of, I suppose, one approach to it. The, there's another, uh, there's a woman who I think you would absolutely adore and I think everyone should kind of look into, Jane Jacobs. And she came to prominence around 1961. Um, she released a book called Importance of Death and Life in Great American Cities. And she was a New York Times um, reporter who kind of took a look at the architecture that had been created around her and was like, this is in complete antithesis to what community life and connection and human satisfaction is all about. Like the, the ideas that they're building, kind of like these high rises surrounded by greenery are completely antiquated. No, not antiquated, but they, they divide communities and they don't permit people to connect with one another. And her whole argument was that you need people in very clustered urban environments to have access to each other and have access to spaces. Um, and she argues that what you should do in terms of having old buildings that need to be restored is you should give them, instead of restoring them and building them into new things, you should um, provide them as spaces to be bought up by um, kind of lower level shop clerks and other people who can kind of make the renovations themselves. And that permits the lower economic sector to have access to buildings instead of just gentrifying things. Um, I know that wasn't a direct answer to your question. I think that affordable housing units, I don't know if there's ever been a case of affordable housing units becoming so beautiful that it's turned over to uh, the private sector. Um, I'll do some research on that, but I think the main issue is cities refusing to build beautiful and high quality affordable housing units because they're afraid that- I, I'm not sure that it's due to worrying about people not wanting people to live in nice places. 
in many affordable housing cases, especially when it came to Yonkers, um, and especially when it came to building other entities, people were, policymakers were very worried that if they built up houses, which were nicer than, or as nice as people who had bought their own homes, um, that they would be, that the houses would not be, uh, would be targeted or in general, they would lose their position as whatever policymaker they were. This is supported by the basis of housing in the United States government. The United States government pushed single family homes and owning your own, own house um, post-World War, actually apologies, in order and as a uh, propaganda technique during the Cold War, um, because they they kind of use it as a red scare tactic. The United States government launched propaganda campaigns where they would give school children at school a little bunt, little pins that said, "My daddy or my mommy owns owns our house," and they would go and then wear that throughout the day. Um, so this is, I mean, associating housing with the benefits of capitalism and having the American people literally buy in to capitalism by owning and maintaining their own property is embedded in American culture at this point mm -hmm. and policy decisions, I would argue. I thought the government usually, or when you say affordable housing, are you also talking, are you making that synonymous with government housing? In other words, the government continues to own the housing, right? Isn't that the, the housing, affordable housing that the government builds you're talking about? So that's housing the government keeps. Or are you talking about, because I'm thinking you're talking about apartment buildings for low income. Or are you talking about all the housing like FHA? My father, your grandfather used to renovate those houses, uh, Farm and Home Administration houses. And um they always accepted the lowest bid. And I think they probably accepted the lowest bid on those apartment buildings too. And I think that, that I mean, you know, you're not necessarily gonna get the best quality that way, but I know that he bid on houses to repair them and they didn't always have the right description about what had to be done. And he would lose money instead of making it sometimes because of that, you know giving the government, and then they would sell those houses to people. I don't know that they chose low-income people only. That I don't know. Kind of doubt it, actually. When I speak but, of affordable housing, I'm, I'm referring to um, providing rental assistance, houses which are specifically provided so that people pay 30% of their income to the housing. But they're owned by the government, these? Yes. These, and they keep ownership of them. Yes, but this does not necess necessitate that the government, that all government-funded buildings um, for the poor are within the greater bubble of affordable housing. Yeah, because you mean because there's the projects and stuff where I don't know what part of any income or how much people have to give toward that, but they're not kept up well. I mean, it just has been, it's been a real mishmash of 
Yeah, this is, it's interesting to me because it's like, if they are paying 30%, like why would, the, the reasoning is that like people are going to get jealous of something that these people get such nice houses for only 30% of their income. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like why, why is that the, the, the belief? Well, that's true because if it's 30% of your income, that's considered healthy, economically healthy. At least that's what I read. Yeah, um, these places are not up economically healthy. This is not about this is not about being economically healthy. The reality is is that affordable housing and just in general moving black people close to white people or giving giving poor people assistance is negatively viewed by many people within this country because many people within this country believe that you have to quote unquote work hard in order to earn your earn your keep in order to receive the benefits that you have and many people including people who are born from white immigrants who had it difficult what 70 years ago when it came to integrating into the country believe that because their parents were able to succeed, everyone else should be able to succeed and afford their own property as well. You hear it time and time, because I've been doing so much research and reading on housing issues. I mean, time and time again, repeated in every single book, whenever there is mostly a white person, but whenever there is a property owner coming to a council meeting or attending, a group, their main, their main point is that we have worked hard for this and you have not. In Yonkers in the 1990s, they said when, when the government was pushing to, actually the government was not pushing, when a judge required the government to put affordable housing units into white suburban neighborhoods, the suburban neighborhoods responded by almost essentially rioting um, in the streets and in the council offices and saying, we worked hard for this. Our parents, our parents like were, were poor and, and they came up from the ground, not, not considering at all the fact that they were white. Well, some of them are blatantly, blatantly uh, aligned with the KKK, but, um, and then again in San Francisco, Recently, when there have been council meetings, there have been many people that have come in and said, you can't build affordable housing here. You can't build more housing units here because we have worked for, for specific echelons of person, we're a specific category, and we have worked exceptionally hard for our wealth. These people, I hate to say it in these terms of these people, but they, they truly have no idea what the realities of most Americans, and especially not Black Americans are at all. And I feel like if the government had a better track record also of keeping buildings up that they ha house people in, they would do it. They would have a little better reception. But also all that is built on a fallacy because there's there hasn't been a cost of living raised with minimum wage. People go work full time and still have to get food stamps because they're still so far under minimum uh, under. Uh, the poverty level, even working. So none of that really, a lot of it doesn't add up. And yet I hear the same thing around here. People will say, oh, they give everything to these people. You know, you don't do anything and you get everything. And it's like, I, they don't have any personal 
experience with it though. And I, it's just a, a conservative talking point, but it's bullshit. I mean, yeah, there are lazy people who get some stuff, but that's not, it's not a great life. I have a question. So is there, so there's obviously the, the people who don't want people to come to the neighborhoods for those reasons, but do you think there are, is anybody that is like, is there a correlation at all between affordable housing and like safety? And is that grounded in anything other than um, like, you know, obviously be, like police officers patrol like black neighborhoods more, you know, like, is there a correlation between like, I don't know, like people that are in affordable housing and like, like it, it, are there, is there anybody out there that is not wanting an affordable housing unit to be placed in their neighborhood for a reason that is remotely valid, you know? Cause I don't find any of it. Like I find these reasons like, okay, we just need to have, like these people are difficult to reason with, but like, are there, is there anybody that isn't actually like that, you know? This is a great question and one I will unfortunately have to answer away from Zoom and more in the podcast space because the audio unfortunately was lost. There is different evidence on what affordable housing um, does, quote unquote, to neighborhoods once it's been placed in neighborhoods. Overall, the evidence is quite positive. The New York Times found that suburban neighborhoods in Wisconsin, which originally were terrified of affordable housing because they bought into a Trump rhetoric that it would increase crime and decrease property values, several years after the affordable housing, or I should say low-income housing in this case, was placed into the neighborhood, uh, were quite pleased with the results and uh, there was no such decrease in property value and in fact community morale was up due to the new neighbors. Other studies from, uh, for example, uh, University of California, Irvine, finds that in actuality across the board, affordable housing increases property value and decreases crime levels. Um, they tied this to the community response um, as very pivotal for the reaction. However, a Stanford study found that in analyzing two neighborhoods that had affordable housing implemented into it over 10 years, one neighborhood which uh, was of uh, a lower economic status and another neighborhood which was of a higher economic status, that in the lower economic status neighborhood, the affordable housing was a fantastic success. There was both increased property values and decreased crime levels in that neighborhood. However, in the higher income neighborhood, there was uh, increased racial segregation between the two communities, uh, kind of making two uh, communities separate from one another in one neighborhood. And there was uh, some level of decrease in property values as well. It's a complicated story and one that we'll dive into in the next episode. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful day.